0: Section thirty one of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One by Albert Hubbard. Thomas A. Edison, Part Two. The Edison factories at West Orange cover a space of about thirty acres all fenced in with high pickets and barbed wire. Over two thousand people are employed inside that fence. There are guards at the gates, and the would-be visitor is challenged as if he were an enemy. If you want to see any particular person, you do not go in and see him. He comes to you, and you sit in a place like the visitor's dock at Sing Sing. With me it was different. I had a note that made the gates swing wide, However, one gatekeeper scrutinized the note and scrutinized me, and then went back into a maze of buildings for advice. When he came back, the general manager was with him, and was reproving him. In a voice full of defense, the county down watchman said, "'Ah, now, and how did I know but that it was a forgery? And anyhow, I'd never let in a man what looks like that, even if he had an order from Bill Taft.' The Edison factories, all enclosed in the high fence and under guard, include four separate and distinct corporations, each with its own set of offices. Edison himself owns a controlling interest in each corporation, and the rest of the stock is owned by the managers, or family. With his few trusted helpers, he is most liberal. Not only do they draw goodly salaries, but they have an interest in the profits that is no small matter. The secrets of the place are protected by having each workman stick right to one thing and work in one room. No running around is allowed. Each employee goes to a certain place and remains there all day. To be found elsewhere is a misdemeanor, and while spies at the Edison factory are not shot, they have been known to disappear into space with great velocity. To make amends for the close restrictions on workers, an extra wage is paid and the eight hour day prevails, so help is never wanting. Ninety nine workers out of a hundred want their wages and nothing else. Promotion, advancement, and education are things that never occur to them. But for the few that have the stuff in them, Edison is always on the lookout. His place is really a college, for to know the man is an education he radiates good cheer, and his animation is catching. To a woman who wanted him to write a motto for her son, Edison wrote, Never look at the clock. The argument is plain, get the thing done. And around the Edison laboratory there is no use of looking at the clock, for none of them runs. That is the classic joke of the place. Years ago Edison expressed his contempt for the man who watched the clock and now every Christmas his office family take up a collection and buy him a clock, and present it with great ceremony. He replies in a speech on the nebular hypothesis, and all are very happy. One year the present assumed the form of an Ingersoll dollar watch, which the wizard showed to me with great pride. In the stockade is a beautiful library building, and here you see clocks galore, some of which must have cost a thousand dollars apiece, all silent." ONE CLOCK HAD A NEATLY PRINTED card ATTACHED, DON'T LOOK AT THIS CLOCK, IT HAS STOPPED, AND ANOTHER, YOU MAY LOOK AT THIS CLOCK, FOR YOU CAN'T STOP IT. IT WAS ALREADY STOPPED. ONE VERY ELEGANT CLOCK HAD A SOLID BLOCK OF WOOD WHERE THE WORKS SHOULD HAVE BEEN, BUT THE FACE AND GOLDEN HANDS WERE ALL COMPLETE. HOWEVER, ONE CLOCK WAS RUNNING, WITH A TICK NEEDLESSLY LOUD, BUT THIS CLOCK HAD NO HANDS. The Edison Library is a gigantic affair, with two balconies and bookstacks limitless. The intent was to have a scientific library right at hand that would compass the knowledge of the world. The laboratory is quite as complete, for in it is every chemical substance known to man, all labeled, classified, and indexed. Seemingly Edison is the most careless, indifferent, and slipshot of men, but the real fact is that such a thorough business general the world has seldom seen. If he wants, say, the electrical review for March, 1891, he hands the boy a slip of paper, and the book is in his hands in five minutes. Edison, of all men, understands that knowledge consists in having a clerk who can quickly find the thing. In his hands the card index has reached perfection. Edison has no private office, and his desk in the great library has not had a letter written on it since eighteen hundred ninety-five. "'I hate to disturb the mice,' he said, as he pointed it out indifferently. He arrives at the stockade early, often by seven o'clock, and makes his way direct to the laboratory, which stands in the centre of the campus. All around are high factory buildings, vibrating with the suppressed roar and hum of industry.' In the laboratory Edison works, secure and free from interruption unless he invites it. Much of his time is spent in the chemical building, a low one-story structure lighted from the top. It has a cement floor and very simple furniture, the shelves and tables being mostly of iron. "'We are always prepared for fires and explosions here,' said Edison, in half-apology for the barrenness of the rooms.' the place is a maze of retorts, kettles, tubes, siphons, and tiny brass machinery. In the midst of the mess stood two old-fashioned armchairs, both sacred to Edison. One he sits in, and the other is for his feet, his books, pads, and paper. Here he sits and thinks, reads, or muses, or tells stories, or shuffles about with his hands in his pockets. Edison is a man of infinite leisure, he has the faculty of throwing details upon others. At his elbow, shot in sneakers silent, is always a stenographer. Then there is a bookkeeper who does nothing but record the result of every experiment, and these experiments are going on constantly, attended to by half a dozen quiet and alert men who work like automatons. I have tried a million schemes that will not work. I know everything that is no good. I work by elimination." says edison when hot on the trail of an idea he may work here for three days and nights without going home and his wife is good enough and great enough to leave him absolutely to himself in a little room in the corner of the laboratory is a little iron cot and three gray army blankets he can sleep at any time and half an hour's rest will enable him to go on when he can't quite catch the idea he closes up his brain cells for ten minutes and sleeps, then up and after it again. Mrs. Edison occasionally sends meals down for the wizard when he is on the trail of a thought and does not want to take time to go home. One day the dinner arrived when Edison was just putting salt on the tail of an idea. There was no time to eat, but it occurred to the inventor that if he would just quit thinking for ten minutes and sleep, he could awaken with enough brain power to throw the lariat successfully. So he just leaned back, put his feet in the other chair, and went to sleep. The general manager came in and saw the dinner on the table and Edison sleeping, so he just sat down and began to eat the dinner. He ate it all and tiptoed out. Edison slept twenty minutes, awoke, looked at the empty dishes, pulled down his vest, took out his regular after-dinner cigar, lighted it, and smoked away in sweet satisfaction, fully believing that he had had his dinner, and even after the general manager had come in and offered to bet him a dollar he hadn't, he was still of the same mind. This spirit of sly joking fills the place, set afloat by the master himself. Edison dearly loves a joke, and will quit work any time to hear one." it is the five minutes sleep and the good laugh that keep his brain from becoming a hot-box he gets his rest when do you take your vacation mr edison a lady asked him election night every november was the reply and this is literally true for on that night there is a special wire run into the orange clubhouse and edison takes the key and sits there until daylight taking the returns "'writing them out carefully in that copperplate Western Union hand. "'He is as careful about his handwriting now "'as if he were writing out train orders. "'If I wanted to live a hundred years, "'I would use neither tobacco nor coffee,' said Edison as we sat at lunch. "'But you see, I'd rather get a little really good work done "'than live long and do nothing to speak of. "'And so I spur what I am pleased to call my mind, "'at times with coffee and a good cigar,' just pass the matches, thank you. Some day some fellow will invent a way of concentrating and storing up sunshine to use instead of this old, absurd, prometheus scheme of fire. I'll do the trick myself, if someone else doesn't get at it. Why, that is all there is about my work in electricity. You know I never claimed to have invented electricity. That is a campaign lie, nail it. Sunshine is spread out thin, and so is electricity. Perhaps they are the same, but we will take that up later. Now the trick was, you see, to concentrate the juice and liberate it as you need it. The old-fashioned way inaugurated by Jove, of letting it off in a clap of thunder, is dangerous, disconcerting, and wasteful. It doesn't fetch up anywhere. My task was to divide the current and use it in a great number of little lights, and to do this I had to store it and we haven't really found out how to store it yet, and let it off real easy like and cheap. Why, we have just begun to commence to get ready to find out about electricity. This scheme of combustion to get power makes me sick to think of. It is so wasteful. It is just the old foolish Prometheus idea, and the father of Prometheus was a baboon. When we learn how to store electricity, we will cease being apes ourselves, until then we are tailless orangutans. You see, we should utilize natural forces and thus get all of our power. Sunshine is a form of energy, and the winds and the tides are manifestations of energy. Do we use them? Oh, no! We burn up wood and coal, as renters burn up the front fence for fuel. We live like squatters, not as if we owned the property." there must surely come a time when heat and power will be stored in unlimited quantities in every community all gathered by natural forces electricity ought to be as cheap as oxygen for it cannot be destroyed now i am not sure but that my new storage battery is the thing i'd tell you about that but i don't want to bore you of course i know that nothing is more interesting to the public than a good lie "'You see, I have been a newspaper man myself, used to run a newspaper. "'In fact, Veritas, an old subscriber, once took exception to one of my editorials "'and threw me into the Detroit River. "'That is where I got my little deafness. "'What's that?' "'No, I did not say my deftness. "'I got that in another way. "'But about lies, you have heard that one about my smoking big black cigars. "'Well, the story is that the boys in the office used to steal my cigars.' and so I got a cigar-maker to make me up a box that looked just like my favorite brand, only I had em filled with hemp, horsehair, and a touch of asafoetida. Then I just left the box where the boys would be sure to dip into it. But it seems the cigar man put them on, and so they just put that box into my own private stock, and I smoked the fumigators and never knew the difference. That whole story is a pernicious malrepresentation invented by the enemy of mankind, in order to throw obloquy over a virtuous old telegraph operator brand it witness therefore that i have branded it forevermore once upon a day i wrote an article on alexander humboldt and in that article among other things i said this world of ours round like an orange and slightly flattened at the poles has produced but five educated men and ironical ladies and gents from all parts of the united states wrote me on postal cards, begging that I should name the other four. Let us leave the cynics to their little pleasantries, and make our appeal to people who think. Education means evolution, development, growth. Education is comparative, for there is no fixed standard. All men know more than some men, and some men know more than some other men. Every man I meet is my master in some particular, said Emerson but there are five men in history who had minds so developed and evolved beyond the rest of mankind so far that they form a class by themselves and deserve to be called educated men the men i have in mind were the following pericles builder of athens aristotle tutor of alexander and the world's first naturalist leonardo the all-round man the man who could do more things and do them well Than any other man who ever lived. Sir Isaac Newton, the mathematician who analyzed light and discovered the law of gravitation. Alexander von Humboldt, explorer and naturalist, who compassed the entire scientific knowledge of the world, issued his books in deluxe limited editions at his own expense, and sold them for three thousand dollars a set. Newton and Humboldt each wore a seven and three fourths hat. Leonardo and Aristotle went untaped, but Pericles had a head so high and so big that he looked like a caricature, and Aristophanes, a nice man who lived at the same time, said that the head of Pericles looked like a pumpkin that had been sat upon. All the busts of Pericles represent him wearing a helmet, this to avoid what the artists thought an abnormality, the average Greek having a round, smooth chuckle head like that of a Bowery bartender america has produced two men who stand out so far beyond the rest of mankind that they form a class by themselves benjamin franklin and thomas a edison franklin wore a seven and a half hat edison wears a seven and three fourths the difference in men is the difference in brain power and while size does not always token quality yet size and surface are necessary to get power and there is no record of a man with a six and a half head ever making a ripple in the intellectual sea. Without the cells, you get no mind, and if mind exists without the cells, it has not yet been proven. The brain is a storage battery made up of millions of minute cells. The weight of an average man's brain is forty nine ounces. Now, Humboldt's brain weighed fifty six ounces, and Newton's and Franklin's weighed fifty seven let us hope the autopsist will not have a chance to weigh edison's brain for many years but when he does the mark will register fifty-seven ounces the orangutan weighs about the same as a man but its brain weighs only a pound against three pounds for a man give a gorilla a brain weighing fifty ounces and he would be a methodist presiding elder give him the brain the same size of edison's say fifty-seven ounces and instead of spending life in hunting for snakes and heaving coconuts at monkeys, as respectable gorillas are wont, he would be weighing the world in scales of his own invention and making, and measuring the distances of the stars. Pericles was taught by the gentle Anaxagoras, who gave all his money to the state in order that he might be free. The state reciprocated by cutting off his head, for republics are always ungrateful." Aristotle was a pupil of Plato, and worked his way through college, sifting ashes, washing windows, and sweeping sidewalks. Leonardo was self-taught, and gathered knowledge as a bee gathers honey, although honey isn't honey until the bee digests it. Sir Isaac Newton was a Cambridge man. He held the office of Master of the Mint, and to relieve himself of the charge of atheism, he anticipated the enemy, and wrote a book on the Hebrew Prophets, which gave the scientists the laugh on him, but made his position with the state secure. Newton is the only man herein mentioned who knew anything about theology, all the others being infidels in their day, devoting themselves strictly to this world. Humboldt was taught by the natural method, and never took a college degree. Franklin was a graduate of the University of Hard Knocks, and Edison's alma mater is the same. There is one special characteristic manifested by the seven educated men I have named—good cheer, a great welling sense of happiness. They were all good animals. They gloried in life, they loved the men and women who were still on earth, they feasted on the good things in life, breathed deeply, slept soundly, and did not bother about the future. Their working motto was, One World at a Time. They were all able to laugh— genius is a great fund of joyousness. Each and all of these men influenced the world profoundly. We are different people because they lived. Every house, school, library and workshop in Christendom is touched by their presence. All are dead but Edison, yet their influence can never die, and no one in the list has influenced civilization so profoundly as Edison. You cannot look out of a window in any city in Europe or America without beholding the influence of his thought. You may say that the science of electricity has gone past him, but all the sons of Jove have built on him. He gave us the electric light and the electric car, and pointed the way to the telephone, three things that have revolutionized society. As Athens at her height was the age of Pericles, so will our time be known as the age of edison so here endeth little journeys to the homes of good men and great being volume one of the series as written by albert Hubbard, edited and arranged by fred bann borders and initials by roycroft artists and produced by the roycrofters at their shops which are in east aurora erie county new york nineteen twenty two End of Thomas A. Edison Part 2 End of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard